In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One, horn, one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became, became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the hosts of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken, broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels had become completely wicked, a stern-faced king 
a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that had, has been given to you, given you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. These are the words of the Lord. May they produce faith in all who hear them. In his haunting book entitled Night, Elie Wiesel tells of his time in the Nazi death camps. He recalls with vivid detail the suffering and death that had passed before his eyes. He tells of his faith in God being ripped away from him, being ripped away from his people. Listen as he recounts with a fellow Jew who had suffered alongside him. My faceless neighbor spoke up. Don't be deluded. Hitler has made it clear that he will annihilate all Jews before the clock strikes 12. I exploded. What do you care what he said? Would you want us to consider him a prophet? His cold eyes stared at me. At last he said warily, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He alone has kept his promises. All his promises to the Jewish people. Daniel is once again given an apocalyptic vision of evil tidings to come. And yet again, we must put on our interpretive hats if we are to understand what God is communicating to us. If you missed last week's sermon on Daniel 7, I suggest you go online and listen to the first portion where I explain how apocalyptic writing works. For now, I will briefly review a few key things to keep in mind. First, this style of writing uses heavy imagery. In other words, the vision that Daniel sees, they represent something else. Second, these visions tend to focus on the big picture. They are epic scale stories that revolve around major events in human history. Third, this genre typically has a telescoping effect. And what I mean by that is that it will jump the reader forward from one certain portion of history to the final day of God's judgment. And finally, apocalyptic writing is meant to comfort, comfort those who are suffering under persecution. It is intended to demonstrate that God is in control. And no matter how bad things get, there will come a time when the evil of this world will be stopped and it will be judged. The good news is that Daniel 8 
has a slight interpretive advantage over Daniel 7. The angel Gabriel communicated to Daniel specific meanings to this vision. We don't need to guess which kingdoms the beasts represent. But let's do our due diligence. Let's see what we can learn from the text, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, this vision is set roughly two years after the vision, the dream that Daniel had in chapter 7 with the four beasts. The year is probably 547 B.C. Again, if we were to position it chronologically in the first six chapters of Daniel, it would have taken place between chapter 4, when God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and chapter 5, when the hand of God wrote on the wall about Belshazzar's demise. Now, where Daniel's previous dream had taken place at the Great Sea, this vision is beside the Ulai Canal in the citadel of Susa in Elam. Susa was roughly 200 miles east of Babylon, where modern-day Iran is now located. Now, we're not sure if Daniel had ever been there or how he knew that he was beside the Ulai Canal. The text just doesn't tell us. Yet Susa is a fitting location for it would serve as a major city of power during the reign of the Medes and the Persians. It was from this city where the ram would first emerge. And Once again, we see God uses the beasts of this world to represent two great empires. First, there is this ram with two long horns, and one horn is longer than the other, even though it grew up later. And no other animal could oppose it, so it became great. The angel Gabriel lets Daniel know that this ram is the Medes and the Persians. You see, Persia had been a vassal state of Media until Cyrus the Great rose in power. He had overthrown Astyages, the Median king. Cyrus then took his warring ways and headed north and west and south. He conquered Lydia and much of Asia Minor. He also defeated the Babylonians, as we had read about in Daniel 5. Yet the Persians, they grew arrogant, and they stretched their grasping hands into Greece, and they were unable to maintain a stronghold there. Instead, what they ended up doing was setting off a bitter feud that would last for generations. And this is accounted for in this chapter. Look at verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, we see the speed of Greece. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him, 
The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. It is said that when Alexander the Great had finally conquered Persepolis, the Persian capital, he looted the city and then burned it to the ground. Not one man was left alive, and all the women were enslaved. It was an act of revenge for when the Persians had burned down the Acropolis in Athens. Yet such destruction was not the norm for Alexander. You see, everywhere he went, he instilled Greek culture in a process known as Hellenization. In doing so, he would leave behind statues and reliefs of himself and other Greek gods to be worshipped by the people that he had subjugated. Hellenization was the chief tool for him maintaining control over these lands. Yet Alexander never made it back to Greece. On his journey home, he had stopped off in Babylon of all places and died of a fever at the young age of 33. And in a vie for power, the generals who served under Alexander split the empire Hence, we read this in verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Each general went off in their own direction, taking control of different regions of the empire. This epic struggle between the ram And the goat, it is all build up for the main purpose of Daniel's vision. Verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now Gabriel, he does not give us the name of this little horn, But he tells us that this king would arise in the latter part of the reign of the Greeks. From the clues in this vision, and from what we will learn as we continue to read Daniel, we can be pretty confident that this little horn is none other than the Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV. You see, Antiochus, he desired to expand his eastern kingdom by cutting into the territories of the Ptolemies down in Egypt. To do so, Israel, the beautiful land, became a strategic stronghold. Yet Antiochus demanded more than just land and political power. He was determined to Hellenize the Jews. He was determined to have the people worship him as a god as well. He took upon himself the the title Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God manifest. Yet he abhorred the Jews because they had rejected Hellenization, staying true to the Jewish customs and to their God, Yahweh. Yet not all the Jews felt this way. Many decided to partner with Antiochus and with the Gentiles. And they began worshiping not only this ruler, but other foreign deities as well. Mothers refused to circumcise their children and gave them Greek names in an effort to keep up with the times. 
They ate unclean foods that the Gentiles did, leaving behind the commandments of their God. Yet there was a remnant who did not bow the knee to Hellenization. And this horn in Daniel's vision waged war against them. Verse 10. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. In 167 BC, Antiochus attacked and tore down the walls of Jerusalem. He led this assault on the Sabbath day because he knew that many of the pious Jews would not fight back. They were slaughtered as a result. He then entered into the temple of Yahweh and set up an image to the god Jupiter. A pig was sacrificed to this god, and other vile rituals were performed. This was an act of desecration. It was deliberate defilement. And for three and a half years, Antiochus controlled the temple, ending the, the morning and the evening sacrifices. He forbade the practice of circumcision on penalty of death. And any scrolls of the Torah that he could find, he would either tear up or burn. It was a time of judgment. And it was a time of persecution. It was a time when evil seemed to rule the day without challenge. It was a time when God seemed to not care. In extended times of suffering and persecution, the question arises, how long? How long can this go on? How long can people turn their backs on God and nothing be done? How long will God stay silent? Today, war rages in the Middle East. How long will God stand still? Millions of babies are aborted every year. How long will the Lord turn a blind eye? AIDS and HIV wreak havoc across the continents of eight of Asia and Africa. How long will the Ancient of Days allow such suffering? Christians are jailed and killed for their faith in North Korea. How long before Jesus steps in to rescue them? Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. Elie Wiesel, he did not know how long he would be under the cruel hand of the Nazi regime. He did not know if rescue would ever come to him. He wrote these words. Never shall I forget that night 
the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. How long until God intervenes? Verse 14. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. The angel asks, How long? And God gives his answer. God has set a limit to suffering. He has established a boundary in which the evil of this world cannot cross. For three and a half years, the morning and the evening sacrifices were cut off, and the Jews were persecuted by Antiochus Epiphanes. God's word was stifled, only being spoken in the hidden crevices of the mountains in the wilderness. Yet God had established a limit on this little horn's wrath. This stern-faced king would go so far, but no further. God would intervene. The revolts in Jerusalem, led by the Maccabees, continued to grow and strengthen, while the armies sent out to quiet this rebellion drained much of the wealth of this king. So Antiochus, he journeyed into Persia, to loot cities and collect the spoils of war, trying to fund his efforts, trying to fund the troops that were trying to squash this rebellion. Yet his plan turned out to be unsuccessful. And in 164 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes died from a disease. The Maccabees had won the day, and they reconsecrated the temple of Yahweh. The Lord had once again brought about his glory into the land of the living. God's people were renewed. Now while we have the luxury of looking back upon history and filling in the details, it was Daniel who had received this vision and the interpretation from Gabriel. It was beyond his understanding for it concerned the distant future. He was told to seal up the vision. And this experience that made him ill and exhausted, possessing the mere knowledge that his people would one day undergo such tribulation, appalled him. But remember, by this time, it had been over 50 years since Daniel and his friends had been taken captive to Babylon. How long would God allow the people of Judah to be without a homeland? How long would they be without the house of the Lord? Yes, a vision like this pertains to a future that Daniel would never see. But there is a lesson to be learned from it. God has set limits to the evil of this world, and he has a plan for redemption. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? 
How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Unlike Elie Wiesel, who lost all hope and faith in God, our psalmist David did not lose hope. He did not lose his faith in his time of trial and persecution. Daniel did not lose hope either. As we will learn next week, he continued to seek God in prayer, not only for himself, but for his people as well. Psalms like this one would have been a refuge for him during his time of captivity. And they can be a refuge for you in your time of need as well. Brothers and sisters, you have an enemy that pursues you. There is a stern-faced king in this world who seeks to destroy you simply because you are God's holy people. You may, not, you may not face the threat of death from a maniacal ruler, but your faith is challenged nonetheless. In the same way that the Jews faced Hellenization under Antiochus, you face a culture that is in opposition to the things of God. The truth of God's word has been thrown to the ground. If you hold fast to your Christian convictions, you'll be labeled a bigot. If you refuse to bend the knee to the sexual revolution that has taken place, you will be ostracized. If you speak the gospel openly, it will be categorized as hate speech. And at the rate that American society is heading, this modern version of Hellenization is only going to escalate. Yet if Daniel has taught you anything, it should teach you that there is a spiritual battle being waged. Your true enemy is not the person who threatens to silence your faith. Rather, it is the deceiver of this world. He desires for you to cave under the pressures of society. He wants to see nothing more than for you to deny the truth of God's word. It's the same tactic that he used in the garden when he said these words. Did God really say? God calls you to stand firm in your trust of him. Despite whatever trials it may bring, you are not alone in your suffering. And though it may seem like the evil forces of this world will win the day, and you may be asking God, how long? Know this. God has set his appointed time, and his salvation is at hand. Just as that stern-faced king was destroyed, but not by human power, Christ came to defeat your enemies. He shed his blood on the cross to take away your sins. He was crucified for you to free you from the bondage of the devil. He then rose from the grave, removing death's grip upon your life. 
The evil one tries to stifle the truth of God, yet God's word will not pass away. His truth is firm and unshakable. His promises are true and trustworthy. It is in them that you must put your faith, for this is where your true hope lies. This is where Christ's victory for you can be found. Dear friends, God will put an end to the corruption of this world, even the corruption that lives inside of you. He promises to give to all who trust in him a new heart, a heart of flesh and not of stone. How long, you ask? It is in God's hand. Your job is to trust in his timing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. So many things in this world are out of control, and evil seems to be, gain, to be gaining strength every hour. Yet we know that you are sovereign and that you have set limits to these things. Help us to trust in you, to trust in your Son who suffered under the evil of this world for our sake. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.